Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Coons, David Appled, and Aaron Uphoff. So you know what that means. It's time for another conclave. We've reached our season finale. It'll be a very brief break in between seasons, but we're ending this season with yet another conclave where we tackle your questions. Well, gentlemen, I'll I'll try to name your name so we know who's talking when, and uh, we have to weather post, and weather posting with a full group is is difficult. So, uh, David, how's the weather in Paducah? Paducah is uh, beautiful this time of year. It may be that we're through the summer, although it may also just be that we're experiencing a brief little uh, dip down into the 80s. So it's great outside right now uh, as we're recording this. Next week, it'll probably go back to 100 again, but I'm enjoying it for now. There you go. Uh, Aaron, New Jersey. How's New Jersey weather? Beautiful right now. (laughs) We're recording this at about uh, 3.30 in the afternoon, and it is a nice low 70s today. Very, very comfy outside. Can I get a barometer check? (laughs) (laughs) Pressure. uh, Adam, how are things in Fort Wayne? That'll probably also cover my my weather report, too. Yeah, when we're on together, it's it's anticlimactic, basically, because how far apart are we? Three hours, four hours. So it's nice. It's really nice sunny it's not raining so i'm always happy because it's going to be great in a couple months right same way here it almost feels like fall but you still got to get outside folks and this is official word fitly advice we endorse uh, hydrotherapy but we also endorse some um, actual sunlight exposure so get outside and put some sunshine on your face at least at least a good hour a day i would say get outside you know while you can because soon enough for most of us here um, among the word fitly crew the 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 sun will go away for a, for a few months, um, which brings me to you, Zellwin. How are things up your road? <laughs> uh, actually, things are kind of on the hot end today, have been over the past week. Of course, I'm a fur-bearing mammal, so I don't tolerate <laughs> heat very well. Got up into about the 97-degree range today here in North Dakota. Wow. You know, oh, that's you know, gross. So, so we, we tend to get these you know very cold winters, but also very, very hot summers. And we're kind of in the the hottest part of the summer right now, so I'm I'm basically dying. But go on. <laughs> well, that's okay. Make yourself a good wallow. You'll be fine. You'll make- <laughs> he, he has accepted the fact. He's resigned himself to it, as we knew he would. Yeah. <laughs> F in the chat for the North American bison. <laughs> we'll use his entire hide. Every nope. An assaulting tourist left and right for getting too close to him. <laughs> they have signs up warning people about me. So do, do not approach or feed Zelwyn. <laughs> the little known fact: the Native Americans used to use every part of the Zelwyn. <laughs> I learned that in public school. <laughs> or as the Indians call it, maze. So. Well, anyway, guys, uh... we've got a very fun episode ahead. Uh, some very good questions. Not sure that we'll get to all of them. And you know what? We've got a few spicy ones, so we'll see. We'll see how this goes. We'll we'll kick this off with a with a very mild question. One: How has women's suffrage influenced the LCMS over the last century? And do you think BLM will have the same effect on us over the next one? Who wants to take that grenade? <laughs> Susan B. Anthony was a good woman. Economy <laughs> improved. <laughs> 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 Big line go up. 
<laughs> she's our favorite. <laughs> the when when women's suffrage was a developing political topic prior to the First World War and then just after it, the LCMS in its official publications was against it. At, we're so we're speaking of civil suffrage. We're not speaking of women's suffrage in the church, which in the LCMS doesn't officially happen until the end of the 1960s. But as a civil matter, it was understood by the people that wrote things like Le Ron Vera and De Lutheraner and other things that sort of normal LCMS people were reading, pastors were reading, that uh, to have women voting in the state is an inversion of created order and will inevitably warp the state because women are not given dominion over the state. They don't bear the sword or they at least should not bear the sword. So they weren't talking about you know women in combat yet, but they saw it as fundamentally the same issue. And so the, LC- the LCMS was against it. Yeah, and and of course the LC the probably the most obvious influence that women's civil suffrage had on the LCMS was when we get to the '60s and women are given the vote. Should a congregation decide to allow that? Right. And I think Martin Charlemagne, otherwise known as one of the faithful five at the St. Louis Seminary, didn't he pen the CTCR's decision on this, or was it CTCR at that point? Yeah, it was. Yeah, late six. I think CTCR starts in 1962. So, yeah. And basically, Charlemagne's theological workaround was one that wasn't made earlier in the LCMS, which is there's kind of two elements to kind of to getting around women exercising authority over men, either in the state or in the church. And Charlemagne's workaround was one, the Bible doesn't say anything about this, which... which is which is kind of a like okay well there's no bible verse about you know slamming my car into a crowd of you know pedestrians so i guess i can do it type of reasoning and the other the other workaround was because it doesn't clearly say anything about it and you're familiar with this line of reasoning if the bible doesn't clearly say something specifically about this then christians can reasonably disagree which i'm perfectly happy to say about like tax policy but not about men's and women's roles. So, but that's how we did it. And then we voted to allow women's suffrage at the end of the 1960s. And so then when you end up, when you end up with, um, you know, a hot button issue, like, you know, will, will BLM have the same effect over the next century? Yeah. We don't know, but the spirit of that group has had influence at least since the 1960s right, um, in the United States. So different groups by different names, different movements. Um, now things appear to have reached kind of a fever pitch. And so it, it's really too early to tell. You know, we we don't have that omniscience. I think that the spirit of of these groups will persist mm-hmm. and will probably gain more influence as the official academics right. and, and, and the people in the media. As certain, you know, I mean, they have certain protocols that they follow and, and we're seeing it play out before our eyes here. And so even if even if the group has a different name, I think you're going to see it, the spirit of it resurrected in different forms. Right. And I think a lot depends on how much ground is conceded. I mean, back in the 1969 convention, when the Senate changed and allowed women voters, if someone would have gotten up and said, well, this will lead to churches allowing you know, women to do everything but consecrate the elements and be elders. And I'm sure someone would have said, no, that's crazy. That, that'll never happen. And yet, 
you know, we know how things have changed. And I think it was 2004 when the Synod said, technically, you can have women elders and stuff like that. So, you know, BLM's lasting influence in the Synod is going to depend a lot on the next several years and what's done in the face of the push for, well, everything from, you know, full-throated endorsement to reparations. I th- I, th- I think it also like the trajectory from we're against women voting in the state to 45 years later, a little bit more, we're now for women voting in the church as well. The trajectory there was of the Missouri Synod becoming more and more mainstream. Whereas prior to the First World yeah. War, especially, we were not mainstream. We were fairly politically unified within the Democratic Party because that was the that was the actually conservative party at the time, socially, certainly. If we, in in reaction to BLM, if our church body rejects that Marxist movement and also understands itself as not mainstream, and that's a good thing, then yeah. we don't necessarily have to follow the same trajectory of just gradual erosion of things we used to believe. Right. We don't need to try to be the Southern Baptist Convention because, um, you know, there's there's probably the largest Protestant group uh, in the United States that's really beginning to capitulate yeah, uh, yep. these it, things. Officially, right. right. Officially, right. yeah. Officially capitulate. Yep. That sort of quest for legitimacy that so many Lutherans have is what leads us to compromise with the world because mm-hmm. because we don't want to be seen as weird. Well, like, we like liturgy. We can be weird kind of in the chancel sometimes, but we don't want to be weird anywhere else. And it's always under the mask of, well, it's for the sake of the gospel, but we know better. It's It's for the sake of... It's for the sake of ease. It's for the sake of being accepted uh, in large part, because rarely do these discussions end with some kind of presentation of the gospel, because it refuses to confront actual sinful positions held by, let's say, Marxist groups, for example. I mean, is Christianity compatible with Marxism? I think that's a fair question and one that's easily answered. I mean, and and so uh, you know, again, it's like the fifties, and I kind of like it, but uh, but it's 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 kind of <laughs> feels more like the sixties if you're in certain cities. I understand that, and I joke. It's not to make it's not to make light of this, but you know, if if we take if we if if we continue toward in certain circles uh, an advocacy for positions that are against the scripture, and certainly positions that would intend to divide the church along non biblical lines, and that's what this threatens to do then we're going to find ourselves in a very precarious position, in my opinion. It's very funny that, you know, there's all these cries for unity, but, but there is no unity in Christ here. It is, it is clear division. And with one person saying, if if you don't take my side here and and advocate for these principles and these groups, then you're not on the side of Christ. It's very, very troubling, a very troubling thing. And, and I think a lot of this, you know, it, it certainly isn't helped by media. It certainly isn't helped by social media. Um, if, if human beings could look each other eye to eye and actually talk with one another, I think would be much more fruitful, especially Christians who have the actual Holy Spirit within them. Then I think that the Lord would answer our prayers and actually unite us in the gospel. But we actually have to be in communion, be in fellowship and be in real, true person to person conversation before that can happen. But I'm old fashioned like that. I still make phone calls when I could text. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, guys. I, you know, uh, any other? There we go. I was wondering where David was. Well, yeah. I I wanted just to say this. It's it's interesting just to think back over the last month, maybe two months, really, that this has surfaced. I think 
this is an old meme, but it still checks out, right? The the debates that we were having in the, the coronavirus time were about things like, should churches be open? Should churches be enforcing masks? Things Things that had to do with Christianity and like, at what point is it okay to resist? And what does Christian resistance to the government look like? Um, but but those things, and this is what I mean, it's an old meme. I think there was a time where it was like, well, okay, that, that issue is going to go away. And the, the BLM and all of the racial reconciliation, whatever you want to call it, that's going to be something that we are going to continue to have to think through and work through. And now, I mean, only a month later, that seems apparent to me. I mean, um, I, I know we're still under various levels of quarantine and restrictions in what our churches can do, but I think that this this really will be something that continues, like we were saying before. And I, you know, trying to compare it with the suffrage movement and things, it's hard to do because I don't know what the what was the climate of the church like back then. You know, what were these things being discussed at pastoral conferences? Were they being discussed? I would think that they were, but we're not meeting for things. And so we're not, I'm not seeing, you know, official like CTCR documents. And I don't know if I really would want to see the CTCR documents on this <laughs> stuff. I'm not advocating for that, but do you, do you get what I'm saying? It's, it's a, there is a silence right now, but it feels like it's the calm, you know, really before the storm. Yeah. This is something that's really going to impact you in large part, depending on where you live for now. It'll spread everywhere, slowly starting to. But um, I mean, you, our congregations in major cities are really wrestling with this question in a different way than congregations elsewhere. Well, all right, guys, let's move on to the next question then. Uh, it, it's a shift in gears, so uh, be ready. Did the formulators correctly understand Flacius' teaching on original sin and the nature of man? Well, actually, um, <laughs> we really do have to break down the background here and dealing with what we mean by Flacius, especially for those who may not be familiar with the uh, with the the controversy, right? So, excuse me, it's the, it's the Flacian heresy, Zoan. <laughs> we have to call a thing what it is. Go on, go on, yeah. But <laughs> my, I, I think one of the issues with questions like this is that historical theology is a great place to sort of play games or vindicate or renovate a reputation or eviscerate a reputation. But in a certain sense, it doesn't matter for the church as long as the church is scriptural. So whether or not the formulators understood exactly Flacius according to his own self-understanding is in itself kind of an academic question. It, it can't, it can't, it doesn't, it doesn't finally matter. And my, my, my issue with Flacius on this is that if you want to be well understood, you should be as clear and as temperate as possible in how you express yourself. And because he wasn't trying to do either of those things, nor did he teach his disciples to do those things, it is inevitable that you will be misunderstood on some topic, if not specifically the topic of original sin. Yeah, and I, I think I think your point is well made there too, because even if let's say they didn't understand him correctly, that's not going to change the fact of what happened in the aftermath. Right. We have 
we have to basically deal with history as it is and whether or not, like you say, we're going to rehabilitate Flacius or, or whatever it, yeah, I mean, we can have these arguments, but we have to really dig down to the ultimate question of, is you know, like you say, what is ultimately and actually scriptural? So when we're like when we're talking when we're talking about original sin, that when we're saying that original sin is not the substance of being human, to distinguish original sin from created humanity, that's a scriptural answer. Even if the formulators misunderstood, which I don't know enough to rule on that. Even if they misunderstood Matthias Flacius, it doesn't matter because they did get the Bible right. And that's all we actually finally have to do, as important as church history can be. Well said. It makes it makes for good reading in the formula. I mean, that's a the arguments laid out well. I don't know what the is are we around are we answering the question, Willie, or is have we missed it? Well, I mean you're you're getting it there. I mean, I, I think we're looking for a for a yes or no here. <laughs> uh, but you know, hey. It's an academic debate for a reason, <laughs> but let's just let's just leave it this way. Uh, just read the formula, and your life might be better. <laughs> there you go. You know, frankly, we, so we advocate oh, the formula. I wasn't sure if we were in favor of it or not, but good. Yeah, to we're, know. we're yeah we're we're more in favor of it. I would say. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> we are not Swedes, but you know, know it is it is one to. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, we don't subscribe to the Heidelberg uh, disputations. Whoa. Shots fired! Whoa! <laughs> little, little known fact. Little known fact. So, but the formula we word did, fitly tidbits. Yeah, you, we're going to put this in our word fitly calendar. It'll be our little, just a reminder. This is what you actually say you believe. You know, and we can um, we can actually dig into these questions in, in a fuller episode later. Um, because it really is fun to dig into the to the history behind this, the reasons why the controversy occurs. And so, I, you know, it's in typical word fitly style. We like to take the long way uh, around, especially historical questions, if we can at all do it. And so, you know, we'll, we'll tackle it again uh, somewhere down the road. But we are at the first break, so we will be right back with more word fitly. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitlySpoken. Welcome back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. The whole crew is here. Willie Grill, Zellan Heidi, Adam Kuntz, David Appold, and Aaron Uphoff answering your questions in this Season Valley conclave. So we're going to continue right in, just go through these questions here. The next one's pretty interesting. To what degree can Lutherans disagree with statements in the Confessions? 
For example, Mark 16, 9 to 20 is ascribed to Mark in the Confessions, but not all Lutheran pastors believe it. And does denying things like the Mark and authorship of Mark 16, 9 to 20 go against Walther's strict idea of quia subscription? So uh, a few questions in there. Let's take it first. Let's just tackle the question of what do we do with the longer ending of Mark? And let me phrase it this way. What do we do with the nearly universally accepted text uh, from the earliest (laughs) days of the church? (laughs) You haven't loaded the question at all, but that's okay. I would never do such a thing. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, obviously, we're we're arguing very much for the position that it is a part of the Bible because it has been a part of the scriptures since, like you said, the very early centuries of the church. And it really only is coming down to, you know, ideas of, of, you know, textual transmission and, you know, the priority of certain texts over others that leads to the, the whole question coming up at all. But when you're dealing with the vast majority of manuscripts given to us, you are dealing with you know ones which include what's called the longer end of Mark, right? Well, while I certainly understand textual criticism mm-hmm. and some supposed merits thereof, a lot of time when it comes to these so-called disputed texts, academically speaking, it's a very similar thing to what we saw when we were talking about um, you know political movements and BLM and and how they influence us that uh, that quest for legitimacy. Or acceptance, and so in academic circles, it's uh, you know you could be lampooned for for accepting uh, certain texts, and I and I do think that that influences uh, scholars one way or the other. You know, to name no one in particular, but it is the case. I mean, there's academic peer pressure just as much as there is anything, and so it, you know it's not satisfying in the uh, textual critical circles to say, well, this is the Bible because the church clearly has used it as such and understands it to be such. But, you know, I think we need um, to meme the longer ending of the Concordia commentary series on Mark into existence. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then it, of course it goes to this other, this other question. See, we always pivot to the confessions, but I think it's best to start with the question of, is this the scriptures? Yes. And because it's the scripture, because the end of Mark is scripture, that is why the confessions use it. So it doesn't. It's not the confessional position simply because the confessions say it's scripture. The confessions use the longer ending of Mark because it is part of the Bible. If that makes sense, you know. What, so then, what do we do uh, with a quia subscription to things if we can deny certain texts? Which is an interesting question. Who who wants to handle that? I mean the 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 canned answer to exegetical questions or open exegetical questions relative to the confessions is that generically, abstractly from any specific text, you can disagree with the confessions exegesis on this or that point. That has generally been maintained when Lutherans are talking about the confessions to avoid the idea that somehow the confessions are inerrant or that as you, you know, as you talked about, Willie, that somehow the confessions would norm the scriptures. That is, I accept it simply because it's how the confessions argue, not because that's how the Bible itself presents the issue. So abstractly, you can say, yes, you could disagree on the ending of Mark and still be a confessional Lutheran. The real pertinent theological question is not specifically about whether or not you could, but whether or not you should in this specific case. And because the ending of Mark. I mean, the even the term longer ending is already a kind of gaslighting operation, making something seem optional that was once just a given, like biological gender, right? 
as soon as you're talking about the ending of Mark, because scripture itself presents itself that way. And I suppose we could do an episode on it, but I mean, the longer ending of Mark, as it's usually called, really just explicates things that are going to happen in the book of Acts. And so I think there's also a failure of imagination to understand how Mark connects his gospel to what happens after his gospel closes its coverage of the mission of Jesus continued in the church that only St. Luke actually goes on and writes another volume about. So I think there's, there's just a failure of imagination going on there. However, a confessional Lutheran really should not be looking for loopholes when he's thinking about the confessions exegesis or some, of something or use of a specific biblical text. He could think, okay, on this issue, there's a better idea. Although on the question of like baptism and salvation, Mark 16, 16 is about as good as it's ever going to get. That's why the small catechism <laughs> utilizes this. Right. Sure, abstractly, you, you can disagree with this or that exegetical point, but how far do you really want to take that? And the confessions themselves rest their authority on scripture's authority and claim to interpret the scriptures rightly. That's why when we swear our ordination vows, we, we make the confessions our own because they are in accord with scripture. So it all rests on scripture's authority, which is why accepting academic gaslighting operations about this or that scriptural text is already the most basic issue. Well, all right. Anything else to say about Mark and scriptures and how it relates to the confessions? If not, we will move on. Okay. So the next question is a brief history of Scientology and why celebrities are attracted to it. Okay. <laughs> In 15 minutes. I feel like, go. Yeah. I feel like anytime it's cults, everybody like looks at me in the room. But uh, that's fine. So, okay, we could do a whole episode on Scientology, but we'd rather not get sued. So, okay, in a <laughs> nutshell, L. Ron Hubbard, former Navy officer, drug user, and occultist, founds a science fiction-based religion. He's also a science fiction author. In fact, Dianetics, their main text, uh, published in 1950s, is published actually in a in a magazine called Astounding Science Fiction. So it is based on occultism mixed with science fiction. And, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's a very, uh, how do I put this, interesting, you know, creature. So he has his naval career, um, but by the 1940s, like he's living with Jack Parsons, famous, famous rocket scientist and occultist, uh, follower of Aleister Crowley, and, and so on. So he's, before he develops his his science, his religion of Scientology, he is entrenched in um, the occultism of earlier times. And so that's, that's, that's a really, I mean, without getting into the theology of Scientology, that that's where it comes from. I mean, science fiction author, occultist, Navy guy. And then once you start to look at what Scientology believes, you kind of see how it grew out of that to, you know, having a giant ship and, and, and the rituals and, and everything that we go through. Um, we can focus a little bit later on, on the beliefs of Scientology. But now the question then is, why are celebrities attracted to it? And that's a very easy question to answer. In the mid-1950s, Hubbard begins uh, targeting celebrities to convert them. And so they open what's called celebrity centers. And in the seventies, I mean, Hubbard admits, he says, you know, we're, we're doing this so that through the arts and through, you know, media, we can further Scientology. So the reason why celebrities are attracted to it is that they've been, 
uh, victims of a commercial campaign, essentially. They've been targeted for conversion and advertised to. And uh, as a lot of people do, maybe less so today, maybe more, as celebrities begin to endorse something, normal, uh, other, otherwise normal Americans uh, tend to follow them too. And so it was a shrewd move on his part and then rather effective because he does get some notable celebrities and there are still to this day, you know, quite a few notable celebrities who are Scientologists, although I don't know how much weight the names Tom Cruise and John Travolta carry in 2020. But it's an interesting, a very interesting history and very disturbing once you once you get into the, the drug use and the mind control and the earlier occultist beliefs behind this. And so in one sense, it's like so many other cults, but in another way, it's it's so modern uh, because it's tied with the science fiction genre and it's tied with modern Hollywood and, and modern celebrity. And of course, Hollywood uh, from its beginning to this day is, is entrenched in, in occult practices. So it really shouldn't surprise us then um, that celebrities would be attracted to this and would easily be swayed by uh, by the propaganda of the Scientologists. And so that would, there's my brief explanation of, of how John Travolta became a, a Scientologist, I guess. I, f- I feel like Willie um, fed this question to the group through a soccer account that he created. He's like, we need to cover this. So <laughs> <laughs> no, totally legit. This question submitted by a word fitly super fan. So it is not me. I promise. But but, you, but for real, guys, always have a few sock accounts handy just in case you get zapped. <laughs> Do any of you guys want to tackle some of the beliefs of Scientology, like, you know, Thetans and going clear and all that? Or do we want to deal with that later? I, I don't actually believe that the specific doctrines are necessarily explain really anything about its success among celebrities or anybody else. I think okay. issues like funding and organization their corporate ethos and also their willingness to be litigious is really behind their success. Yeah. I mean, I made the joke about being sued, but you literally could be sued for criticizing them, even legitimate criticism. Right. Nothing, nothing that, that has been said thus far is, is libelous. It's all true. It's all 100%. I mean, what we've said about Hubbard thus far, Mm -hmm. Uh, the people he associated with the things that he practiced. It's all a matter of record from even from his own personal correspondence and personal writings. Right. And yet they would, you know, seek to downplay or deny this. And because they are so well-funded, they can essentially crush any opposition. Somebody that we have referenced on the podcast before in connection with the occult, Michael Aquino, who died recently. Right. Maybe of COVID-19, who knows? (laughs) is another figure like this. So if you're interested in the topic, you could look into, there's a there's an interesting bio, sort of combo biography of L. Ron Hubbard and history of Scientology called Going Clear that was published maybe yeah. 10 years ago. But the the one of the things to look into are figures like Aquino or Hubbard or Jack Parsons, who's instrumental in the early days of NASA, not not astronauts, but rockets specifically, because right. there is there is a sort of nexus between the military industrial complex and the occult in American history. And we focus on this in the, I believe it's the esotericism episode we focus yeah. on this, isn't it? Yep. And, uh, and we've, we've talked about Parsons uh, before in Aquino. Um, and it's just amazing how these people who run in the same circles and end up in rather high level government jobs. Right. Very interesting. A little bit disturbing. But people look at you like you're crazy. But again, this is all easily documented. It wasn't like they 
took great pains to hide what they believed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it the other the other thing that people find sort of hard to understand about this is that it's connected to things that are understood to be like high tech, right? But the the line between high tech and occult it seems in the records of these people's lives and their beliefs that line is not very bright. It's very blurry. It's hard to find, right. and sometimes it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've we've been conditioned to try to separate these two things, and that's not really the case. Just go look at some of the rituals that CERN performs, for example, yeah. or something like that. It's, it's interesting, like, once you get to these really high-ranking famous scientists or commanders or people related to the, to the so-called hard sciences, they are much more, shall we say, spiritually inclined it's not this uh they're not these purely materialistic atheists i mean that that you get kind of in the lower rungs of this kind of thought yeah and and it's it's very widespread um occult views among these groups at least it was you know into the 20th century and uh very interesting spiritual phenomena there you know why would these men hold to these views why would these men conduct these rituals why would these men develop these in the cases of aquino and L. Ron Hubbard, why would they develop these religions uh, based upon based upon these principles? Uh, all very sinister and, and all very connected. Anyway, there's Scientology and Aquino <laughs> and Parsons again. <laughs> we can talk, always happy to talk about more of that if you want to, but it gets kind of spoopy after a while. So, all right, guys, any anything else on Scientology or various other cults? <laughs> we should get Tim O'Neill in here to talk about uh, the Manson case. But oh, I love <laughs> anyway, that guy. <laughs> it was great. It was great. If you could, great interviews with that guy. Well, all right, guys. Here's a quick question here. What is Word Fitly Spoken's position on the Malleus Maleficarum? You can answer that easily. Quia subscription, 100%. Right. <laughs> Simple. Simple ad. Yeah. <laughs> Just one, moving like, on now. To, well, yeah. In I addition mean, one, to webmaster, Zelwin is also a witchfinder general. I mean, I mean, <laughs> one, once you understand that the reason Southern California is so weird is because it is the nexus between high tech military industrial complex and the occult, specifically, you would also subscribe to the Malleus Maleficarum quia. Well, it is kind um, of funny that do. we went from this discussion to the to the Malleus Maleficarum. So, <laughs> do you want totally to be natural though? Do you maybe want to explain it a little bit for those listeners who aren't familiar with it? Oh, please do. <laughs> yeah, who wants to? Did, I mean, maybe just put it in a nutshell. I mean, it's it's a medieval text about dealing with the, the problem of, of witches and witchcraft in general. Malleus, of course, meaning a hammer. Right. And basically, basically dealing with how do you how do you approach these kinds of spiritual questions? And I suppose the, the reason why somebody might quibble with it, of course, is, you know, nowadays we quote unquote know better. And that we're, you know, we don't believe in the existence of witches or something like that. And so maybe we'll say, oh, it's mass hysteria. But we've actually kind of dealt with the, the whole uh, witchcraft question before on the on the podcast. Right. Well, and, and if any of you Lutherans are worried, it was written by a German. <laughs> so there you go. Heinrich, Heinrich Kramer. Um, and then they add like a Springer a few years later. There's another there's another author added uh, toward the end. Dominican guy. Dominican the religious order, not Dominican the Republic. Yeah, yeah, not right. like Roberto Clemente. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, is is that a, is that a good enough background on it, or do we want to 
Or do you want to add anything? No, I don't think we need to dive into the specifics of of what it teaches there. I mean, we can. (laughs) You know, there's a... Quoting from memory, as it were, but... Yeah, let me read from the Apologia of the uh, Malleus Maleficarum. Let me recite. (laughs) I wrote it yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I, I think that the the reason that people don't take witchcraft seriously is because they they live somewhere where at least historically it has not had to be taken seriously and i have also met you know 19 year old white girls who tell you that they're a witch but the the reason that that is growing as an acceptable thing to be and the reason that satanists are becoming increasingly public with their religious demands and also their practices especially in things like state houses as a kind of like like a flex uh on christian right with the baphomet statues right. and things like that and there's a baphomet statue where george floyd died the reason for that is because we are living a, a lot of people especially in the west i think are living in a religious vacuum and we are in a time when new things are getting started so i don't take I don't take someone's claiming to be a witch or to practice witchcraft as a sort of joke or necessarily an evidence of, quote, mental illness alone. I take it rather more seriously than that because uh, historically the Christian church has. And things like Malleus Maleficarum exist as real remedies to things in the same sense that, you know, certain demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Certain things have to be dealt with only by thinking seriously about them and understanding what the spiritual problems are behind them. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very well said. Well, guys, uh, how about Aaron or David? Any any comments on witches or Scientology or even Mark? You guys have been pretty quiet back there. <laughs> I'm trying to keep the children quiet in the background. Okay. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting that I'm not listening to the podcast, but instead we're recording it, so... <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, with that, we got to take another break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. He said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. The conclave is gathered, and we're answering your questions. So we've got more good questions coming here. Um, the next one is, um, with with all of the uh, financial turmoil uh, that's hit our country, it's, it's sure to be um, hurting denominations as well, especially at the corporate offices. And so we might start to see historic denominations suffering financial repercussions much sooner than they expected. 
And so based upon this, is there any wisdom that we can glean from past Lutherans to help our synod, our seminaries, and our congregations move through these uh, times of financial turmoil and, and cultural turmoil? I think it's obvious even before COVID-19 and everything that's going to shake out from this that it's it's good to to slash fat from the budget individual congregations and and denominations as a whole it just it it's a it's a good thing to do in light of uh demographic trends i mean membership and numbers is sort of writing on the wall for many of our churches and there's also good numbers that millennials are not contributors as much as uh, boomers as much as the greatest generation or whatever so you can be forced into a corner with that when the time comes or be proactive and frugal up front. Yeah. You know, I suppose, you know, gleaning from, you know, past theologians, I mean, read something like City of God from St. Augustine, you know, to get kind of a good feel uh, for the Christian intention. Uh, something much more recent, um, and there there are a number of these, but it's kind of like, um, and Zellin, the name escapes me, the uh, the book you had me read about the uh, the pastor in North Dakota, the circuit rider, the Lutheran. Oh yeah, um, yeah, uh, Jan's. Um, yeah, I yeah. can't remember it either, but I know it. I'll I'll think yeah. of it later. So yeah, we'll we'll maybe link to it in the description if we think about it. Um, I could go pull it off the shelf right now, but it would be awkward and loud. So, <laughs> but I think that reading the d- journals and diaries and reflections of men who ministered in very difficult conditions. Granted, you know the plains of North Dakota at that time are different than the kind of turmoil we're dealing with today. But nevertheless, they are men who had to sustain with little, little pay. Uh, little benefits, little worldly acclaim, men who struggled with their faith in the midst of, you know, lower life expectancies and infant mortality and really very difficult pastoral situations. I think going back um, to these simple resources are are very, very important for us and very encouraging for us as we too are entering times of difficulty. Indeed, there's nothing new under the sun, and so we can learn much from the sufferings and the sacrifices of these men who came before us that the world has largely forgotten. And, and thankfully, um, you know, the, thanks to, um, you know, modern publishing and, and certain preservation efforts, we can, we can have access to these, to these journals and diaries and really profit tremendously from them. And so don't, don't discount the, uh, the sort of the humble, the humble pastors of old. The, uh, the book that we were thinking of was uh, Called to the Prairie, uh, Life in McKenzie County, North Dakota, uh, the, basically the journals of Reverend Richard C. Yon. And I think that book is actually quite helpful for what you're talking about because, you know, it is talking about a man who is coming to a very different situation than what he grew up with. I believe he was like Missouri raised or something like that. Coming out to North Dakota while, you know, when North Dakota was very much still frontier you know, and dealing with uh, the ways of the people out here and, you know, the struggles that he had and also planting churches in that area. I mean, and and just dealing with that kind of reality is something that I think we are probably going to be facing ourselves, if only because, like you say, you know, financial struggles will lead us to become much more self-reliant in a, in a way. I mean, reliant on the spirit, of course, but, you know, reliant on the things that we are doing for ourselves rather than looking to, say, the uh, corporate organization to do many of these things for us. And, and I don't think there's sin in a lean and mean model to ministry too. What these trials do is they tend to burn away some of the chaff and we'll begin to see that there's just certain things that, that are nice to have, but that we can certainly live without. 
certain positions and offices and even and even properties, uh, depending on what the case may be. And so the pastor might pick up extra duties at the local level, and you know at the corporate level, we're you know who you know who knows, but we're we're going to quickly see that at the end of the day, what is needful is the word of God preached and the sacraments rightly administered. And so, and, and we are able to do that with very little capital. I think it's interesting that you bring up uh, Augustine and like the collapse of the Roman Empire. And I think yeah. especially in the West, when dealing with this question, is it's interesting. You know, it causes a lot of troubles in the church. But as as the you know the empires cr- crumbling around them, as kingdoms are beginning to fall, the church is beginning to pick up the slack in that sense and begins to you know assume those duties which you know it, it hadn't before. I mean, yes, it had to do with money. It had to do with all those kinds of things. But basically, the church stepped in to fill a void which was created by all of these um, problems. And I think that I think something we can pick up from that is that, you know, let's say that we do run into, say, national troubles or that we do run into, say, like another economic disaster. Like, you know, are we headed to another Great Depression or something like that? The church can still respond very positively in a situation like that because she has a message which, you know, outlives all of these problems. It's not something like we're going to say, oh, well, we're, we're caught in the corner now. Oh, the church is going to die. Well, maybe this denominational structure will die, but you know what? The church goes on, and that's okay. Right. And and it is not only acceptable, but meet right and salutary that the church speak to these issues. It's right. okay for you to speak to the political turmoil. It's okay to speak to the economic conditions. Indeed, we, we should care about the uh, the station, the material station of our members. Uh, because that's what God calls us to do in Christ is to care for one another and love for one another. So as times get more difficult, you know, our Lord's grace is all the more magnified and there's ever, there's ever more opportunity to serve him um, in works of mercy and in the fidelity that comes with uh, preaching, preaching his word. And so a focus on that. And I think that's maybe the key here is, is a focus at the local level, the focus of your congregation what do we receive there? Why do we exist? You know, for what reason did we erect this church so long ago, or not so long ago, depending on on your particular congregation? You know, why we exist and what we can do, how we can make the best use of the time in between now and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Adam, David, any words on that? Just in hearing what you're saying, especially like reading these, uh, you know, the the circuit writer kind of guys, it's it's not so much a matter of, you know, we can't really give practical advice about what, you know, every every congregation should cut this out of its budget or cut that out of its budget, but it's it's a stealing of the nerves, you know, as you're describing these things, Willie. And even when and when you read City of God, that does the same thing for you is is you you kind of look at it and say, well, one one approach to this stuff is to wring the hands and, you know, despair because things are <laughs> things are collapsing. But the other thing I appreciate the the commentary too of you know this is the opportunity there too to um, to rediscover like this is um, the church has lived through these things before and it didn't disappear in fact it grew stronger so just be like Augustine and say your problems are all because you worship demons but go well, ahead Adam. yeah I mean <laughs> <laughs> where's the lie though <laughs> Adam uh, you're getting ready to say. Yeah, something that we talked about near the beginning of the episode regarding women's suffrage and church and state, and that was this this process of becoming more and more normal as a church body. That happened also with our finances and our structure. Time was that 
you know, the headquarters of the Missouri Synod was wherever the Synod president happened to live and meetings were in his kitchen. I mean, that sounds quaint, but that's just what it was. And so I think when you think about a denomination or its property or its assets or whatever, we became more and more normal over time. I think the same question faces us financially as faces us politically and theologically. And that is, are we willing to go our own way, which will necessarily be hard, but godly? Or do we want to remain normal? Do we want to try to keep up with things? Because I think that you'll notice that any denomination that is trying to keep up with things or any individual congregation that's trying to keep up with things inside or outside the Missouri Synod will have a combination of utter obedience to every insane dictate of government currently going on right now, a credulous presentation of, quote, systemic racism, and will also have a lot of difficulty going forward because at some point, keeping up is going to mean explicitly denying Christ, uh, as it already does in many facets of American society. Many people's inclusivity training at work is at least requiring them through watching certain PowerPoints to deny Christ. The time is coming when hard things will be required of us, and we will have we will have to at that time go our own way. That is not even the same thing as a church body going away, but it certainly is the same thing as a normal, mainstream, generally accepted American denomination with a headquarters and a budget in the tens of millions going away, most likely. And that could be a good thing for Christ Church at that point. Right. But it's going to be born through hardship. And that's what people, you know, they want to avoid. But I think everybody kind of knows that that's necessary. Right. That it, it, it will lead to temporal, temporal hardship. And so, yeah, so that's our admonition. Read, read what the hard men of old went through. Let them <laughs> tell you uh, how, how the Lord sustained them through hard times. And of course, read the scriptures, you know, read, uh, read about the exile of God's people in the Old Testament. Why did the exile come? What was the purpose of the exile? You know, God is ever calling us to repentance, and especially in these times of a great upheaval. And so, yeah, don't discount the uh, the testimony of Scripture as well. Maybe another, just as a maybe specifically Lutheran example that we've actually covered before, would be to go back and listen to the episode on a Koran and and how he founded like the the Norwegian synods here in America. And I think especially what's helpful for understanding there is that he left a very afflu- affluent position. You know, he was wealthy back in Norway, but that he gave that all up for the sake of the gospel to come and to be, you know, the first pastor west of the Mississippi, the first Lutheran pastor west of the Mississippi. And I think, you know, studying those kinds of examples, especially when men willingly gave things up, will, like like David said, steal us for the fight when we may have to give them up without, you know, without our choice. And so the next question dovetails nicely into this. During times of great social, economic, and religious turmoil in past centuries, people have often turned to pietism in preaching and conduct. Um, uh, Zelman, would you agree with that assessment? <laughs> well, it's, it's my resident these... pietism expert. Yeah, exactly. It's one of these questions you have to ask, what do you what do you intend by pietism? And I'm not saying that as a will, actually, but, you know, is it do you mean pietism like, you know, bad this ultra pious kind of holier than thou kind of, you know, mentality that we usually associate with pietism? 
or do we mean pietism as a historical movement? Because those are kind of two different things. You know, I, I mean, if, yeah. if, you, if you mean the pietism bad kind of approach to things, I think, you know, you're dealing with turmoil leading to a need to determine, you know, who belongs to the church and who doesn't. And that can create a kind of sanctimoniousness that is, you know, is detrimental to actual, you know, holy living. But I think it's also an excellent question because, you know, historically pietism was dealing with, you know, religious turmoil and was actually trying to figure out the question when everybody belongs to the church, even nominally, how do we determine who actually belongs to Christ? And so I think that's the question that we we don't have to really struggle with anymore. And so we kind of misunderstand pietism from its very beginning. Right. Right. Uh, and and well, we do want to be clear here. Um, as far as Pietism goes, in the new season, we're going to be uh, dedicating some episodes to the history of Pietism. So we will be taking a very deep look at Pietism. Uh, you know what it actually was historically, who the major figures are, how it influences Lutheranism. And so I think you all will really enjoy those episodes um, as soon as we get them in the can and uh, the season starts. We'll we'll have them out some Thursday in the near future. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. The question is interesting in in that, like, is this is this being asked as is it a bad thing or is it a good thing? Um, which is kind of what Zelwyn was getting at. But why did if it is true that people turn to Pietism when you're going through some kind of collapse? Why did that happen? What was it? Uh, you know, was what do you turn to when you know if your if your economy is falling apart? And if you're, um, you know, the, the kind of friendships that you had before are collapsing, what, what kinds of things do you turn to? How do you kind of struggling to put this into words? How do you, um, how do you live through that kind of collapse? Um, what practices do you adopt to make it through something that's like a, a collapse, a mini exile of sorts? And it makes sense that you would turn toward, you would kind of turn inwardly not, and I don't say that in a bad way, but you would turn inwardly to the things that you do have some control over within your own family, within your own congregation, and that that those kinds of practices actually are what you know preserve the remnant through a, a really challenging time. Sure. Yeah, it's very, very well said. So, okay, then the next question, and probably the final question um, here is. How does one maintain confessional fidelity in our parishes amidst unrelenting external and sometimes internal resistance? I mean, that's always the question, right? I think, <laughs> right. well, I, I think that, I think that when you're thinking internally, thinking of members as an attack on your fidelity is usually unproductive in the sense that you have to be their physician as well thinking of them as enemies or alligators. I understand why people do that sociologically or politically, and sometimes it is unavoidable and peace is not always possible between human beings. But when a member is asking for something that is wrong or demands that you do something that is wrong, obviously you have to stand your ground. But the way in which you go about that and how you think about that person is different, I think, or ought to be, than how you handle a Southern Baptist who can be expected to know better and still says that you're wrong for baptizing babies or something. But it often surprises me how 
pastors who are handled in these sort of demanding, odd ways by their members do the very same thing to each other when they disagree with each other. And that all seems massively unproductive and probably spiritually destructive on some level, because everyone's confessional fidelity is being challenged all of the time. That's that's Satan's business. And so we should neither be surprised by it, nor I think ultimately grieved by it, because scripturally, it's actually good for us to be challenged and to be pushed and to be stretched. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's part of the discipline of the Christian life. And we need that, actually, so that we don't end up, I don't know, spiritually obese. Yeah, flabby. Right, yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Spiritually flabby. That's a bit, yeah, there you go. Very good. How about you, Aaron? I agree. No, I mean, it's <laughs> how the, uh, the, 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 it's very, it's very easy to desire smooth sailing. And I mean, I think that that's always the temptation for a pastor, you know, confessional or otherwise to, to want to not have any troubles or any problems. And so, and, and if, and if he does go through a period where he doesn't have it, it's easy to just sort of rest on laurels. And then when it does, arise he is sort of left scrambling for doing the right thing or being prepared for it you know i mean the best firemen are the ones that do drills for fires uh you know getting their suits on and getting in the truck or whatever uh even when there's no fire and i don't know i mean to be to be a good pastor i think just we always need to be ready for for these things but also i want to say with the the understanding that you know it's it's sheep we're dealing with not you know like you you deal with the antagonist inside of the church who is a Christian differently than you would from someone outside of the church that's seeking to destroy the church. You know, even though there's hostility, uh, those are two different types of hostility. I think one born out of uh, weakness and the other born out of uh, just a complete opposition to God and, and making sure you have that distinction down uh, before going forward is essential. Maybe it'd be worth saying too, that, you know, when it comes to those kind of external pressures that, you know, the, the question referenced, you know, we, don't be afraid to be weird, which is kind of our been our point in the past couple of sections here. You know, being a Christian means that we are going to be different from the world. And so perhaps maintaining our confessional fidelity is to recognize that we are set apart from the world. But as far as those internal pressures, yeah, I, I think what every, everybody's been saying is, is right on point. You know, deal with the, the, the body as the body, seeking to heal the body and not just trying to cut off something. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well said. Well, guys, we are at time. Do we have any final words as we wrap up this season? Join us for next season. It should be a good yeah, time. Yeah, we got a lot of uh, exciting things coming up. Um, you know, keep an eye on uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we'll we'll be there um, with with updates and things about future episodes and uh, future future projects. So this has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Koontz, David Apple, and Aaron Uphoff. God love you, and God bless.